You guys, this is week three of us taking a look at some of the scandalous stories about Jesus. Uh, scandals aren't really something that we would normally associate with Jesus. I mean, when you think of scandals, they're almost always negative. You know, famous people caught in affairs, uh, business people caught stealing, and politicians caught lying. These are the scandals that come to mind. It's always bad stuff. But the kind of scandals that Jesus found himself in were very different. And it's often hard for us to see those scandals or understand them because it's difficult for us to comprehend the world and the culture that Jesus lived in. When we read the accounts of the life of Jesus from guys like Matthew and John and then dictated to Mark by a guy named Peter, more often than not, the scandal is missed by us. It isn't obvious to us. It was obvious to the ones who wrote it, and so they don't always spell it out for us. When they wrote it, they assumed that the scandalous nature of the story would be obvious to the readers. For you and I to truly appreciate some of these stories, we need to try to understand them in their cultural and historic context. So, like in week one, when we talked about Matthew, when we read about Matthew, we are simply just told that he is a tax collector that Jesus invited to be one of his disciples. And we have to do a little digging, a little historical context, a little understanding of the culture to discover that being a tax collector was far more insidious than it sounds. The term tax collector insinuated something much worse than just somebody who's there to collect taxes. And if we just skim these stories quickly or we just accept them at face value, we run the risk of missing the deeper meaning behind the story. A few years back, our family was together at my parents' place for dinner uh, around Christmas, and we were all talking around the table uh, when my mom shared this really moving story. She told us that the neighbor kid had been quietly coming over to her house uh, after uh, snowfalls and shoveling her driveway. And she never saw him do it. He was humble and kind. He was just shoveling the snow off the driveway and then disappearing. He never knocked on the door, never asked for money. And she was so impressed by his kindness and humility that she bought him a $100 Amazon gift card and wrote him a beautiful Christmas card, thanking him. It would have been a nice story, except it wasn't true. In fact, it had been me and my six-year-old son, Justice, who had been coming over to shovel the snow uh, every time it snowed. And here I was teaching my kid about volunteerism and kindness, and this neighbor kid who did nothing got all the credit. That was supposed to be my Amazon gift card. Context matters. It helps us to understand the big picture behind the story especially in the scandalous Jesus story that we're going to talk about today. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and if you've ever read through the Old Testament, uh, you may have discovered that culturally Jews had some odd habits and traditions. And as a community, they lived very differently than the world around them. Uh, being clean and maintaining a strict set of rules to stay that way was very normal for them. In fact, most Jewish people in that time would never even set foot in a non-Jewish person's home out of fear of becoming unclean. 
They were committed to that sort of segregation. In their minds, there were Jews, and then there was everyone else. There was this group of people that God loved, and then there was everyone else. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, it was this sort of thinking that he was trying to change. Matthew, himself a Jew, captured an incredible moment in the life of Jesus when he seriously risked his reputation by drawing outside of these cultural norms. Jesus had drawn a crowd like he tended to do. He had just finished preaching one of his most famous sermons. He had just healed a man of leprosy. And there was this buzz about this rabbi who was moving and shaking and doing these amazing things. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 8, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Now, we have to stop right there for a second. A Roman centurion is coming to Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, for help. And if we read over that too quickly, we're going to miss the story behind it. We'll miss the absurdity of this request. Roman centurions didn't ask Jews for anything. If they wanted something, they took it. The Romans were essentially an unwanted occupation to Jews. And about a hundred years before this moment, General Pompey began his occupation of Jerusalem by storming into their sacred temple, walking right past the do not enter sign and going wherever he wanted. Over the next hundred years, Jews would be overly taxed, they would be brutally policed, and violently murdered at the whim of the Roman occupiers. It was in this time that Rome actually introduced crucifixion as a way to intimidate the, the people that they were occupying. And this Roman centurion has come to Jesus asking him for help. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Can you imagine what this request sounded like to the Jewish people following Jesus, overhearing this conversation? Suffering? What did this man know about personal suffering except how to inflict it on others? Him and his people have been controlling and killing Jews for a hundred years. They knew what it was like to suffer at the hands of Romans. And so hearing him ask for help, they must, the tension was growing. And on top of that, this wasn't just any regular Roman soldier. This was a centurion, a man who had earned his title, his position, everything he had through violence and unwavering dedication to Rome and its ruthless mandate. Centurions would flog and sometimes even kill their own men to make a point. Imagine how they treated everyone else. And normally in this situation, if a servant became ill and unable to complete their duties, it would be the Roman centurions who would be the ones to make the decision to just have them killed. Centurions were the personification of suffering. And to those Jews listening in on this conversation, help, helping this man, helping this centurion would be absurd and it would be maybe even border on betrayal. The crowd is fully expecting Jesus to tell him to go kick rocks. 
There was no way anyone thought Jesus was going to help him. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, well, shall I come and heal him? What? What did he just say? Did he say what I think he just said? Did he offer to go to his home? It was unthinkable. It was unheard of. And it was scandalous. For Jesus, it was just an average Monday. It was moments like this that Jesus used to undo thousand years, thousands of years of isolationism to, to show that the love of God wasn't meant just for a few, but that it was meant for everyone. That everyone could know their creator and experience his love. And that even a ruthless and violent man like a Roman centurion was not beyond the grace of God. <laughs> it's crazy when you think of it that Jesus chose to help the Roman Empire. The very same empire that would behead his cousin John. The very same empire that would oversee Jesus' own execution. The very same empire that would go on to murder and oppress Jesus' followers for the next hundred years. And the story gets even more scandalous. The Roman centurion seemed to be aware of the tension that he was creating from Jesus. He knew it, rabbis that Jews would never enter the home of a Gentile like him. And so he, he, he senses this and he says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but I just say the word, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus, you don't have to desecrate yourself by coming to my home. Just say the word. And I know your will will be done. Jesus is caught off guard by the depth of this man's faith. And he looks around at the people gathered and they're in shock that Jesus is even entertaining this guy. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He just compared the faith of this Roman centurion to the whole Jewish community. Pretty offensive stuff. He is holding up this controversial figure as a person who is worth being emulated. Someone with great faith. It takes a lot to amaze a guy like Jesus, and he was amazed. It should have been career suicide for Jesus. We can't be sure, but uh, I would be willing to guess that Jesus lost a few followers that day. If you and I had been there, we may have hit that unfollow button too. And Jesus turned back towards this Roman centurion and he said, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Jesus was willing to risk his reputation in this story. And so it's worth us trying to figure out why. Why risk so much? The Roman centurion, he didn't need a show. He didn't need Jesus to come to his home. He, he just believed that Jesus would do the things he said he could do. And he was confident that Jesus would do them for him. Here's the question. Do we believe that Jesus will do the things he says he wants to do?
Do we live our lives confident that he is in control? Does our faith stop at just believing or does it move us to action? There's this thing that I love to do with my kids. Uh, they don't realize I, I do it, and I hope they're not listening, that they don't hear this, because then the gig is up for me. But whenever we're on a trip, if we're going out to the lake or a long trip like going to Calgary, when we get close to our destination, when we're about 25, 30 minutes out, I tell them, if they can pick the exact minute when we arrive, that I'll give them $100. And so they pick a, a moment, you know, they'll say it, we'll get there at 7.35 and, and Justice will say 7.39 and then I'll pick a number and I say, if I get it right, if I'm the closest, then I get to keep the money. Here's the thing. I, I haven't lost yet. Uh, the game is rigged. When my kids don't know is that I will adjust my speed faster or slower to make sure that we show up exactly at the minute I said we would. And if I get too close and I need to burn some time, I'll miss a turn or go around the block. Or, you know, I'll make sure that we arrive exactly when I said we will. They are amazed every time that I am so accurate. I can make a big $100 wager with them because I am confident that I'm gonna be able to make myself right. And, and that's the sort of faith that this Roman centurion is showing in this story. That's the sort of faith that caused Matthew to tell us that Jesus was amazed. That's the sort of faith that could help you and I become more and more the people that God created us to be. Having faith in something isn't just the same as believing. Belief is part of faith for sure, but it's just part of it. Belief turns to faith when we act on it when we risk something, when we wager something that is important to us. And so belief turns to faith when we risk our reputations by inviting a friend to come to church with us, or right now, inviting them to watch with us in our homes online. Belief turns to faith when you read about the love of God and then you make a meal for a family in need or serve our community's most at-risk groups. And belief turns to faith when what you feel in your heart becomes what you do with your hands. The Roman centurion believed that Jesus was Lord and could heal his servant, and that belief turned to faith the moment he stepped out and risked his reputation by asking Jesus for help. What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you believe that he wants to use you uh, to show his love to others? Do you believe that he cares about your hurts and your fears and your anxieties? Do you believe that he wants to heal you? Do you believe that you are forgiven of your biggest regrets? Do you believe others, that, do you believe that he wants others to know that forgiveness, too. In September, we're going to start another Starting Point class. And uh, Starting Point is a great place to learn about faith, whether you've been uh, a Christian for a long time, whether you're a new Christian, whether you were a Christian a long time ago and are thinking of coming back, or even if you're a skeptic, Starting Point is a great place to talk about faith and have honest conversations. And one of the things I say at the start of every starting point uh, is that a good question is better than a bad answer. 
that good questions lead to more good questions, but bad answers end conversations. And so today, I want to leave us this Sunday with a good question. One asked by James, the brother of Jesus, a question that leads to more good questions, and then maybe some good answers. James, the brother of Jesus, said in James 2, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? You guys, the band is going to come back up here, and they're going to lead us in a moment of worship. And if you can, I want to encourage you, take this moment to ask God to help you to know what that step of faith is for you. Maybe it's to join a team. Maybe it's to tell somebody about your faith. Maybe it's to decide to get baptized. Whatever it is, ask him to reveal it to you. And then ask him to give you the courage to change your belief into faith. To move from just knowing into doing. You guys, let's take a moment to pray. Jesus, I thank you this morning that we can look at this story of the Roman century and discover that nobody is beyond your grace. Nobody is beyond your love. That nothing we have done, no place we have gone can disqualify us from your care. And Jesus, I pray that today that you would help each one of us Discover what it is that you want us to do, what that next step of faith looks like for each of us. And Jesus, give us the courage to reach out and to ask for help. Give us the courage to step into who you created us to be. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for giving us this chance to be your church, to be your hands and feet to the world around us. Help us not just to believe, but help us to have faith. Pray this in your holiest of names. Amen.